You're listening to The Story Connective. This episode is part two of our interview with Jenny Pell. She is the primary author of the Malama Aina Report, a design for the Central Valley of Maui that focuses on producing healthy food locally while creating thousands of jobs on the island. I think this is an excellent way forward. It allows transparency. It allows all kinds of infrastructure support for farmers. And it allows us to develop our agriculture industry in its fullness, all the way from the small farmer up to the export company. Welcome to The Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. And I'm Loxley Clovis. The Story Connective is dedicated to documenting and sharing inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. This episode is one of a series called Re-Envision Maui, about an ongoing transition on the island of Maui, Hawaii. It's also part two of our interview with Jenny Pell. Part one of this interview is called What Can We Grow Now? And if you want more background on these topics, check out the episode entitled Re-Envision Maui Before and After Sugar. Though not necessary, you might want to listen to these episodes first. In this episode... Jenny Pell continues to share highlights from the Malama Aina report. This report offers an inclusive look at how to transition from unprofitable sugarcane farming to profitable, diversified organic farming in ways that can also create farm businesses, jobs for locals, food security for the Hawaiian Islands, all while caring for our natural resources, such as water and soil, for future generations. The report is available online for anyone to read. Jenny Pell founded the Permaculture Guild of Maui, is a board member of the Hawaii Farmers Union United, and is now focused on developing a food hub to serve local farmers and consumers, which you will hear more about in this interview. Jenny recently became a partner at Permaculture Design International. She was also instrumental in designing the now-famous edible food forest grown in public parkland in Beacon Hill, Seattle. Jenny has dedicated her career to helping her diverse clients be part of a resilient and abundant future. In part one of our interview with Jenny, we learned about how to transition Maui's former sugarcane lands to regenerative agriculture. We learned that regenerative agriculture saves water and builds healthy soil while growing a large variety of useful crops. In this episode, part two, we learn about the regenerative economic systems that can emerge from growing more food locally. Jenny shares what it could look like to create thrivelihoods for people, jobs and ways of life that are financially sustainable and also in balance with our nature's resources and the needs of the Maui community. We discuss the resiliency of cooperative models, disaster preparation, affordable housing, opportunities for agritourism, as well as some of the challenges Maui would need to overcome in order to implement these ideas. We hope you enjoy the fresh ideas and visions in this interview. And if you have any input, please comment. We'd love to hear what you think. Let's continue this important conversation. This interview will pick up where our last podcast episode left off. The first question is about jobs. As someone who grew up on Maui, the smoke plume from the Pu'unene sugar factory had simply always been a part of my world. Almost daily, I've seen people working in the sugarcane fields, planting, monitoring burns, driving trucks, hauling cane, and so on. It has been a shock to the Maui community that so many people's jobs have come to an end and that sugar is simply no longer a part of our local economy. Our hearts go out to the families that have been affected by this change. And, hopefully, these changes can make room for new and better opportunities. 
So, economy. Many folks hope for a thriving economy. Maui Tomorrow's Malama Aina report claims that, quote, it's been variously estimated that for every job in the sugar industry between 1.24 and 2.82 jobs are created in other sectors, uh, what are called ancillary jobs. Considering this, the loss of 675 jobs on the sugarcane plantation will result in the loss of around 1,370 jobs total on island, end quote. How can regenerative agriculture produce similar or even larger numbers of jobs? What would some of these enterprises look like? So the ancillary jobs that come from the sugarcane industry are truck drivers and shipping, loading dock people and mechanics and all the different people who are contractors to the sugarcane industry. Those are all living wage jobs, middle class living wage jobs. It's still only 675 people on 36,000 acres. Now, when you look at the, in that in its fullness, okay, so let's say we have a commodity crop of doing biofuels on 5,000 acres. Well, even in that 5,000 acres of biofuels, you have to have the growers, you have to have the harvesters, you have to have the machine operators, you have to, they're pressing the oil, you have the marketing, you have, right, that like, even in that one industry, you have a stunning amount of job, ancillary jobs that come from the biofuels equation. Certainly in row crops, so row crops is an excellent example. In a very productive organic farm doing row crops, annual crops, a hard working company or farm would have one person per acre. Any less than that, you can't, you really can't do it. You just like, you, you don't have that many hours in the day. So even if we had one person per acre working, that would be 36,000 jobs. So the combination of you know, grazing, animal grazing, so even in ant, let's look at the cattle. So rotational grazing. So the ranchers now on Maui, and I'm not an expert by any stretch, uh, they let their cattle graze over very large acreage. The forage is not very nutritious, nor does it fatten them up very quickly. And those cows are a little wild, so they're a little harder to control. There isn't a really excellent slaughterhouse on island. In rotational grazing, you're really studying and analyzing and learning the best combinations of grasses that are going to regenerate very quickly when the cattle move through, or sugarcane or other things that they like to eat often perennial shrubs that are nitrogen fixing is a really good example where the cattle will come through and every single day sometimes two or three times a day that cattleman or cattlewoman is coming through and moving the cattle into the next field people say well what if the cattle don't want to go to the next field the cattle line up at the fence and run into the next field to eat so when you have a real excellent rotational grazing system they're not able to spend so much time in the land that they crunch the land up and compact the soil with their hooves. They come in, they eat, they poop, they move on. Very quickly, that regenerates. You're building soil, you're growing perennial crops, you don't have to have cattle feed, the cattle get fat, it's organic, the cattle are docile, right? So the equation for that is huge. Now you have managing the cattle, moving the fences, understanding the grasses, very scientific. Then you have the abattoir, there's all kinds of jobs in a slaughterhouse. Then you have the grocery stores that sell it. 
Then you have the chefs that buy it. So when you look at, you can pick any crop in an organic diversified regenerative ag that's going to have a cascade of jobs underneath that. And that'll be everything from the farm owner to the people that work on the farm, to the people that drive the trucks, to the value, many, many, many value added products that come from local foodstuffs. One of the things that Maui has going for it is its name. People are really excited to buy Maui grown products. We're working very hard at the local level to do truth and labeling. It turns out that you only have to have 10% of Hawaiian grown content in your product to claim it as Hawaiian grown or Maui grown. So you can say Maui coffee and it's 10% Maui coffee, but 90% comes from Ecuador, Madagascar. I don't know where it comes from. And so we're working very hard to change that label so it really means Hawaiian drum. We're getting a lot of pushback from the companies, macadamia companies and coffee companies and all different companies that take advantage of that. So the question was, how many ancillary jobs can we expect in a robust farming and local food industry? I don't even know that you can count them. I mean, it's, it goes all the way from farm to table to agritourism. I mean, everything is included in that. So when I look at the 675 jobs of sugarcane and the, you know, twice again as many jobs in ancillary sugarcane compared to thousands of jobs and double, triple thousands of jobs in the ancillary industry, they don't compare whatsoever. The idea that the county is not getting behind this in, a, in an incredibly committed and robust way is really shocking to me. These systems that you're talking about that create all of these jobs on this acreage, don't these systems require risk and investment and return of profit? How would you see that part of the transition working? Farming is risky and farming is really hard work. And many farms across the country depend on immigrant labor to do the bulk of the grunt work. Even on Maui and even in the sugarcane industry, they rely on non-citizen grunt labor from other countries, including the Philippines. What we find more and more is that Americans who are not first generation don't want to work that hard. So yeah, it's a challenge. And even so, a lot of young people want to get into farming. And more and more young women want to get into farming. And so being able to design your farm from the beginning to buffer against environmental challenges, such as climate change or winds or lack of water, all those things that we talked about earlier, that part of the design and infrastructure is the kind of thing that we can do at a county level and a state level. We can provide funding for, we can provide expertise, we can provide loans, we can do small business classes. All those things can come as part of a farming package. When I look at um, the land-grant universities across the country, Part of the land-grant university domain is also all the extension offices, the farmer's market, 4-H, all those programs come under the domain of land-grant universities. So the extension offices, if they're leveraged well, can be offering small business classes. They can be doing incubator farms. They can be providing an intern service. They can work hand-in-hand -hand with the University of Hawaii Tropical College of Agriculture. We can work with the already existing commercial kitchens that do product testing and labeling and marketing to help them get their products to market. We can work very closely with chefs 
and hotel industry and tourist industry to get the product to table. We can promote and get really excited about agritourism, which is one of my favorite ways to make money for farms. Uh, it really allows them to be profitable. The low-hanging fruit, I, for the great metaphor, to be able to drive agritourism to farms, that is a key way to make money. So I think it's looking at the fullness of the economic opportunity and to try to buffer those risks for farmers. And part of that has a huge amount to do with affordable housing, and I'm not going to sugarcoat that one. If, as a farmer, if you can't live on your land, and you can't live on your land affordably, you can't farm. So we have to include in this land trusts, and this is a zoning issue, and it's a big one. So we have to have that commitment from our county government and our state government to assist in that, in this transition. And this is why I look at this as a very pregnant moment in terms of agriculture and solutions. We don't have an easy way through zoning for farmers right now. We have to be very careful to not open a back door to developers. So for example, I buy 100 acres and I'm gonna have a row crop farm. After two or three years, I can't do it financially and some wealthy person comes in and buys my farm and puts a mansion on it and doesn't really grow anything anymore. So we have to safeguard against development in this zoning equation. That's a really key part of that success. And A and B is a major real estate player. Yeah. Can you talk about its role in real estate on Hawaii and affordable housing, link that to affordable housing? Alexander Baldwin is a publicly traded company that has many subsidiaries. HCNS, Wine, Commercial and Sugar was one of them. That used to also include Matson, which is a shipping company which they sold. But primarily A and B now is a development company. They own a lot of land in Kahului, and you can see the development going on right now. There's cranes and construction and roads and all that stuff, all that infrastructure is going in. Of the 36,000 acres, um, a couple thousand they leased, so that takes their leasing their acreage to 34,000. A few years ago, they put 27,000 of that acreage into what's called important agriculture lands. With that designation, they got tax breaks and access to water and all kinds of perks for putting it in important ag lands. I would suggest that the other 9,000 acres, the non-important ag lands that they kept out of that equation, though if you look at the maps, you can see that those are the prime development edges. So clearly that's an intention that over time they're gonna land bank that and sell it as zoning and finances are maximized. I would posit that that's likely their strategy. We don't know that for sure because we don't get, there's no transparency there. So well, let's look at the other 27,000 acres. Now I wanted to say, just be really clear that I differ from Maui Tomorrow on this. Maui Tomorrow wants to be, um, hold on to all the 34,000 acres and they're willing, they want to go to bat for that. I'd like to focus on the 27,000 important ag lands and say, let's get busy with that. And we can work at the other ag lands. We can find other creative solutions to the other ag lands as we go. On that 27,000 acres that you refer to that the mayor says, we are committed to a thriving agriculture on Maui. Let's get busy. Let's look at that. Let's figure out the best crops for the best places. Let's give access to farmers. Let's figure out the zoning. And I think that if you were to hire a food and ag czar for Maui to work on this issue diligently with the right staff, I think we could make headway very quickly. 
The challenge is, is that many different companies are courting A and B for access to that land. If you think of the land as the bride, we have all these suitors showing up and we don't even know who they are because they're not telling us. We know that Monsanto is one of them. I mean, Monsanto doesn't want 27,000 acres, but they want more acreage, I'm sure. So who's showing up? How do we facilitate access to that? Can we give priority to Native Hawaiians? What does that look like? Nobody's really engaging in this in a way that I can see yet. Millions of tourists come to Maui each year. You brought up agritourism. Could you go into a little bit more of what the definition of agritourism is and what some of it may look like? Sure. So agricultural tourism is an excellent way for farmers to make money. Many farmers have to have a second job in order to support their farm, an off-farm job, both the wife and the husband. So they farm and then they go to work and it's absolutely exhausting and they can barely make the mortgage, often. So agritourism is a really simple way to bring people onto your land who are gonna pay for one of your services on site. It could be a farm tour, it could be a plant nursery, it could be a small store with value-added products off your farm, it can be a farm-to-table fresh farm lunch, uh, it can be all kinds of ways. Um, it could be a zip line. It can be a corn maze. It could be a pumpkin patch. There's all kinds of ways to get people to come on your farm. It doesn't just generate income for farmers. It also lets people love that farm. It also shows people what it takes to grow food. It helps people to be an integral part of our farming future in America. This is really important. A lot of people don't know where their food comes from anymore. So to have kids and parents and grandparents on vacation while they're having a lot of fun come to your farm and learn something and take away something meaningful that lets them feel connected to that, I think that's really important and really valid. The fact that it makes money for farmers, that's even better. Can you define value-added product? A value-added product is when you do anything to the raw foodstuffs coming off your land. So it would be taking lavender and sewing it in a lavender pillow. And it could be taking sugarcane and pressing it into juice. It's taking fruit and making it into jam. It's taking meat and making it into beef jerky. So it's anything that is one more step of processing the food, which adds value to how much you would pay for it. So what you'd pay for a carrot versus what you'd pay for a pickled carrot in a jar is really different. There's been a lot of talk recently on Maui and in the Hawaiian archipelago about hemp. Can you talk about hemp as a crop in Hawaii? Hemp has a lot of potential. Hawaii is working very hard and very quickly to legalize hemp as a commodity crop here on the islands. Hemp has many, many, many uses. Uh, not the least of which is pressing the seed for oil or working in textiles and medicines. There's all kinds of ways that you can use hemp. Many of those industries are really valid and some of them are not. So when I look at, for example, hempcrete, people go, oh, hempcrete's so great. It's a great building material. Well, how sustainable is it to ship tonnages of lime over to Maui to mix with hemp? You have to think it through in its fullness. My concerns about hemp are um, if it's not organic, then it's also just going to be a monoculture of chemically farmed plants as a commodity crop. So I don't want to see 10,000 acres of commercial hemp 
using chemicals. It's also a fairly thirsty crop. It's fairly pest resistant, but it does get predated on by certain pests over time. My two biggest concerns about hemp are, can Maui compete on the global commodity market for raw hemp products? To invest in a hemp factory here to process textiles, I don't know that that's competitive in the global market. My other big concern about hemp has to do with it as an invasive species. Birds will eat the seed, that seed will be spread across the islands very quickly, and the feral cousin of hemp is called ditchweed, and once it's established in our watersheds, you won't be able to get rid of it. So that's a really big concern. We have a very, very fragile, brittle ecosystem here where invasive species very quickly choke out native species. Hawaii is extremely fertile. With its multiple growing seasons per year, abundance of sun and water, Maui has a favorable climate for testing new and improved seed varieties. Maui Tomorrow reports that, quote, HCNS lands have locations suited to lease to organic open pollinated seed companies. What's the significance of open pollinated heirloom and land race seed production? Open pollinated means that honeybees come in, pollinate those plants, then you harvest the seed from that. You're right, Maui is perfectly suited to do seed trials and to do seed production. With the last 20 years of working with Monsanto and in the GMO crops, we have a skilled bunch of farmers who know how to work with seed. To transition them quickly into an organic and open pollinated seed company would be really easy. So when you look at the lateral movement of jobs in the farm industry, I mean the Hawaiian Islands uh, populations have soundly rejected GMOs, although we are forced by the courts to uh, keep them here for the moment. Federal courts. By the federal courts. Um, it's an ongoing challenge in the islands to combat the GMOs. To grow, uh, to be able to have two, three, or four seed crops a year for a seed company, it's really perfect. Many of the seeds that we use in annual crops are hybrid seeds, where you put two seeds together and they grow a superior corn, for example. So most of the corns that we eat, the delicious sugar corn, sweet corns that we eat, those are hybrids. If you plant those seeds, they won't grow true to that hybrid. You have to buy the seed again and again. And I'm not saying that, that hybrid seeds are bad. Many of the things we eat come from hybrid seeds. Being able to have access to a diversity of food crops through a robust seed economy is really important for the future of humans on this planet. It's just a bottom line type of fact. So how do we have successful seed companies and how do we leverage that into profitable jobs on Maui? I think that's a pretty straightforward equation. So we're at this very critical juncture with seeds. You know, seeds are, um, one of my favorite expressions is plant a seed and the ancestors speak through you. And when you plant a seed, you become the ancestors of the future generations. And a few companies are buying up seed companies globally, and they are taking the variety of seeds off the market. They're reducing our genetic heritage very quickly, and that's a dangerous equation as far as I'm concerned. So being able to have a robust seed industry with a diversity of crops, particularly in a climate change era where we need to buffer against all kinds of things, I think it's absolutely important to grow and sell and have a robust seed economy. Maui can certainly be at the forefront of that. We have a great climate for growing seeds, and yeah, I think it's really 
great opportunity for Mellow. There has been a lot about GMOs in the news lately. The Malama Aino report points out that, quote, Hawaii can grow certain seed crops that yield three harvests each year. GMO seed corporations have successfully and profitably capitalized on the unique attributes of Hawaii's favorable climate, year-round sun, and available water, end quote. Christopher Benjamin, AMB president and CEO, told KHON2, quote, I don't think we should ever rule anything out. I certainly wouldn't want the takeaway to be that we're moving toward GMO. I also can't say that we would never look at any GMO crop. But we would certainly be very mindful of that and frankly try to steer away from anything that is going to be divisive in the community. End quote. What's the latest on GMO legislation on Maui and Hawaii and in the United States? And what is the wider Maui community's attitude towards GMOs? I think it's interesting that Christopher Benjamin is hedging his bets on that one. So, yes, it's a very divisive issue all across the Hawaiian Islands, but particularly on Maui. The Monsanto seed industry employs quite a few people, and so they've made it into a jobs equation rather than an environmental or health equation. Personally, I'm very anti-GMOs in every shape and form. I think they are not proven. What we asked for on Maui was a moratorium on growing GMO crops until it could be proven that they are safe. Monsanto spent more per capita fighting us in the election on that ballot issue than they have anywhere in the world. We usually have 20,000 people show up for a vote. We had the largest turnout of any vote in Maui's history. They had nonstop television, radio, flyers, and they still lost. Within a few days of winning that GMO moratorium, they sued us to take it off island. And they won that suit. And it's just gone through several years now of litigation where the Ninth Circuit Court has ruled on GMOs on Maui. I don't know the ins and outs of that. I do know that we had a few wins and we had a few losses both. They are still growing seed here, and it's still controversial. For A and B and the HCNS lands to add more GMO acreage, it would be highly controversial within the community, and they would get a very quick rebuke. I would suggest that they probably won't do that, even though Monsanto probably wants more acreage. So I would say the jury's out on that one. We don't need those crops here. None of those foods are being consumed here. It's all for export. Most of the genetically modified corn that's grown here is simply for seed crops that are shipped somewhere else. So it's not adding to our food equation. It's simply jobs. If we can prove that we can replace those jobs laterally, it makes their argument moot. I think that the seed industry on Maui has an enormous potential for the organic seed industry. And um, I think that those farmers who work for Monsanto now, if we could prioritize their farm jobs, it's moot. Clearly, the effects of chemicals on people and on the soil is terrible. To me, you cannot separate genetically modified crops from the chemicals that they use on them. And if you look at some of the other films that have been made and interviews of people 
who've been exposed to the chemicals, you can see that people are extremely sick and the children are sick. We have requested buffer zones around GMO crops where they spread. The fields of the crops come to the fence of the preschool and the kindergartens. They will not give us a buffer zone. On the days that they spray, the children are sick. They come right up to the edge of communities, they come up to the edge of hospitals, they come up to the edge of schools, and they will not give us permission to have buffer zones around those areas. Syngenta is also on the islands? Yeah, so Syngenta, the chemicals that they use here, for example, Atrazine. Syngenta is a Swiss-owned company. Atrazine is banned in Switzerland, but they use it here constantly. And the Syngenta farm is next to the school? Yes, I believe so. So you have chemical health issues on an unprecedented scale, and you have the chemical agriculture companies denying that they have any effect on people. This is akin to tobacco for me. So you have people dying of lung cancer and the tobacco industry saying there's no correlation. So I believe that these companies lie, bold-faced lies, and I think we need to protect our citizenry and protect our aina against these chemicals. As you look through the data on the research that we've done so far, you can see that it's one thing to look at glyphosate and realize what that does to a person. But when you put glyphosate and atrazine together, what does it do? Nobody knows. They have 88 known chemicals that they use in the ag industry here in constant rotations of spraying. They're not obligated to tell you what day they spray, how much they spray, or what they're using in combination. So, yeah, we have to really move quickly and swiftly away from chemical ag into resilient organic ag. It's more profitable anyway. And these inputs not only affect the human life here, but also the wildlife here too. Of course. Everything from the soil microbes up to the top species in the food chain. And that, of course, all that wash goes out into the coral reefs. We have turtles with tumors. We have dying reefs. There's no one isolated thing you can look at. You have to look at it in its fullness. So the GMO equation on the Hawaiian Islands, um, absolutely, Monsanto and their ilk have taken great advantage of the beneficial climate and multiple harvests per year that they have here. It's great for them. We're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Those field trials aren't going to escape beyond our island borders. Who's paying for it? the local citizens, the land, the ecosystem around the islands. And I think that we need to, at any opportunities, to stop them from having more land here. The citizen here would be up in arms if they got a lot more acreage on Maui in particular. Maui Tomorrow's report includes a cooperative vision for the future of Maui. Quote, If A&B would sell the land at market value, a compelling alternative emerges, forming an island-wide Maui farm cooperative. Every citizen of Maui could be either a worker member or consumer member with voting rights, profit shares, access to healthy island-grown food, even health care. Under the umbrella of the Maui Farm Cooperative, independently managed divisions would oversee each business branch, livestock, tree crops, vegetable crops, agritourism, composts, marketing, distribution, irrigation, education, and so on. Who is involved and what's the latest development on the idea of a farm cooperative? Shifting out of a missionary descendant 
monoculture plantation company for export using chemical ag into a diversified organic ag with multiple layers of jobs is one thing. To have that be owned by the people of Maui is another. So inspired by the Mondragon style cooperative in Spain, we at the Farmers Union, for example, have been looking into how to do large agriculture cooperative here in Maui. I think this is an excellent way forward. It allows transparency. It allows all kinds of infrastructure support for farmers. And it allows us to develop our agriculture industry in its fullness all the way from the small farmer up to the export company getting stuff on ships. And I love the idea of a cooperative that has multiple job opportunities and that within that, the cooperative board would oversee that as a citizen-generated business. Cooperatives are for profit. They do allow a distribution of the monies across different sectors. Farm co-ops are really normal. Any farmer who's farmed for any length of time belongs to some kind of co-op, whether it's going to be a seed cleaning co-op or there's going to be a bulk buying co-op or a selling co-op, any of those things. It's completely embedded in the culture of farming. It's not a new liberal idea. It's a very conservative and smart economic idea. Taking that into a member-owned cooperative, I think, is brilliant. So finding a way to transition our farming into an island-owned series of businesses puts it in a completely different light. So if you look at our permanent residents, 150,000 people, if a third of those people were members of the co-op, you can imagine what kind of power they would wield. And you could have all kinds of benefits that come from that. And you have a vested interest in its success. And you have a voice at the table. All those things are important to me. One of the interesting things about the Basque Country-based cooperative Mondragon was when the economic crisis really hit Spain hard in 2007, Caja Laboral, which was the financial arm of the cooperative, was the only financial institution that was resilient enough and didn't have to be bailed out in Spain. They were also the only ones who called up the Spanish central government and said, we have health care, don't worry about us. Very resilient model. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's a different culture. You know, it's looking at a different culture. So um, developing that cooperative culture here, I think, is quite possible. There's plenty of examples to look at that are successful, but we want to be part of that success. One of the things we're working at at the farm union right now is a food hub model, which again is sort of like a fractal of these solutions, where at the food hub you have aggregation and distribution for small farmers, you have a commercial kitchen for value-added products, we want a permanent farmer's market, so a structure that's beautiful and built and the farmers just have to come and put their produce out, they don't have to put their canopy up and break it down, it's indoors so we don't have to worry about rain. The space can be changeable, so you can have a craft market one day and a farmer's market another day. You could have concerts there. You could have kids' programs during the week. You could use that space in all kinds of ways. On that same acreage, we want to have incubator farms, very much like they do at Intervale in Vermont. Uh, we'd like to have school farm programs come through there, and we want to have farm store so that locals and tourists alike can shop there. So when we look at the food hub equation, how that's serving the local community, that's a great example of looking at how a cooperative can work on a larger scale. What does resilience mean to you? 
I feel very strongly that sustainable as a goal is just not enough. The pendulum has swung so far out of balance that for your equation to get to sustainable, it's just not enough. We have to go into additive, resilient, buffered, permaculture type systems. So permaculture in its fullness is looking at, again, a successional strategy that's moving us towards living large on a small footprint and then embedded in your community are the skills needed to manage those different systems living large on a small footprint. What we found in the last two, three, five, ten generations is that the loss of skills needed to run your local economy and local farms and local animal husbandry and local watersheds has been lost. To go from a robust million-person food resilient culture to a diverse peoples importing 96% of their food on an island in a place where you can grow more food than we could possibly ever consume here is a travesty and it's dangerous. And when we look at the combination of peak oil, peak population, peak water, peak overfishing, like all of these, this confluence of peaks that are upon us now, it's incumbent on us as local communities to be as resilient as possible. And resilient is beautiful. I mean, resilient is fun. Resilient is thriving. And there's a word we use sometimes of right livelihood, that you're earning your income doing something that's meaningful in the world. Uh, I like the word thrivelihood, where we're really taking that to yet another level. What's your vision for Maui in the next 140 years. So sort of building on that concept of peak oil. So when we look at you know, the dawn of humanity up until 1850, it took us that long to get to a billion people. And then we went to seven and a half billion in the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's this gradual curve up to peak. It's a pulse. It's a spike. And we have this like, like up here in the energy ascent culture. And here we are at the top of this peak. And as Toby Hemingway used to talk about, this is our little grace period. We can look down over that precipitous rise and go, oh my gosh, look what just happened. But if we look down at the other side of it, coming back into balance in the global human equation, it's a really scary precipice to look down. What does the planet look like with 8, 9, 10, 11 billion people on it? If you can imagine that in its fullness, we have to get really proactive about our local food economies. When you have a certain amount of stress in a system, you can expect things to happen in a certain way in your own personal life. Oh, I have financial stress. Oh, I have family stress. Okay, I'm going to behave this way. But when the stress gets beyond a certain point, it becomes wildly unpredictable how people or ecosystems, ocean systems are going to behave. I think we're at that over-the-top stress moment at the beginning of it. It's only going to get worse. And we can see that playing out on the global stage right now. These wildly unpredictable stresses are starting to manifest in ways that will end up in famine and war and all of these really tragic things. I can see it coming. So how do we take this grace period at the top of this peak 
and there's plenty more peaks to come. And look at the resilient buffered system that allows us to behave as a sane and reverent people at this moment, where we respect each other and respect the land and we respect our watersheds. And we build into our communities those skill sets that we need to manage those on that small footprint so we can keep the wild places wild. This is the core, the crux of the permaculture part of this discussion, is looking at that zone five where you really are supposed to enter those wild places. And if you want, don't go there. But if you do go there, go with a sense of reverence. How do we cultivate ourselves, our families, our communities, our farms, our skill sets, our whole culture in a way that lets us live in a way that's in balance and not damaging our ecosystem? How do we do that? Maui is right at that crux of that question. A fertile microclimate, multiple growing opportunities, a vibrant fishing industry, plenty of money, constant money coming in, a demand for our products globally just based on our name. If we miss this opportunity, that is a failure that we just can't afford to have right now. So how do we pull together our resources, our financial and our human resources, to show what we can do here? Learning how to live within our means is part of this equation. Reducing our carbon footprint. What I've been saying lately in this uh, beginning stages of this Trump presidency is that really what we need to do now is just grow food and know your neighbors as a very first step. Yeah. Thank you. This concludes our interview with permaculture designer Jenny Pell. We hope this interview inspires more conversation about what's possible. The challenges we face today are too important not to talk about. Leave us a comment and let us know what you think. To read the Malama Aina report, go to www.futureofmaui.org. You can learn more about Jenny Pell at Permaculture Design International. The Story Connective is 100% listener and viewer supported. If you support The Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing inspiring stories of resilience and possibility to the world, there are many ways you can help us. Support our crowdfunded project at patreon.com storyconnective or by using the Be a Patron button on the Podbean podcast app. Also, it's a huge help if you simply share our stories. Share this podcast with friends, family, and coworkers. Subscribe to our podcast feed. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Like us at facebook.com storyconnective. And leave us comments and reviews. We love hearing from you. And thank you for your support. Interview by Rebecca Rhapsody and Loxley Clovis at storyconnective.org. Audio recording and production by Loxley Clovis at storyconnective.org. Intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, released under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The outro song is by Rebecca Rhapsody. Special thanks to our sponsor Elsa at ellsa.org. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education, news, and commentary. This interview is released under the Attribution Share Alike Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening to The Story Connective. <laughs>